I, I think this idea that, um, you know, obviously there's mysteries that we don't know how God formed the heavens and the earth, and we don't know things like that. Obviously, he could reveal that, and that would all be brand new information, even to any cosmologist or physicist of our day. You know, they would learn things that no mind has even contemplated. But to know how to come to Christ, is it's been revealed. And this idea is... It's implicit in baptism for the dead that somehow God is bound and these people are stranded in spiritual limbo unless we do something on earth for them. And to me, that's contrary to scripture that we do have already. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We're two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. So, brother, I was thinking about foundations, and I don't know if I shared this before. When I was young growing up, my mom and dad both worked early, and when my sister and I were young enough that we weren't able to stay alone yet, we'd have to get up early with dad, and um, he would take me down to either my aunts or my grandma, they were actually my great aunt, they were sisters and they lived across the street from each other in our small town. So every morning we would go down there and stay there for a couple hours until our school time. Then we'd walk to school. It was neat because Sunday nights we'd have church and we would go home with my grandma after church and stay the night so that we didn't have to get up early. And she always had Mondays off from her job. So every Sunday night we'd go to her house. And then on Wednesday nights after church, we would go to my uh, my great aunt's house and spend the night, and so there was two days a week we didn't have to get up early. But <laughs> wow. I didn't. I looked forward to it, not because I got to sleep in in the morning, but because both of them would uh, spend time with us before going to bed. I remember my aunt, uh, especially, she had this huge bed in the guest bedroom, and she would come in and lay on the bed and. She would tell me stories of the church, the early church, um, and my grandma did too, the history of our little congregation there in that town uh, when the missionaries came through and my great-grandfather, or maybe my grandfather, it was my great-grandfather, responded to the gospel, and they took this church from out in the country on the cemetery hill, and they moved this church into town. Uh, you can imagine the job back then, uh, wow. pulling this church on rollers, big wow. logs. Yeah. And the townspeople didn't want that church there, and they were they were assembled together to keep them from doing it, and through some miraculous means, they were able to bring the church in, and that was the start of that church. But wow. also they would tell me stories from like Oscar Case, uh, my book of Acts, and other missionaries, and when you're a young boy and you hear these stories of like the the grasshoppers, you know, coming through and destroying the crops and the saints prayed and they, they flew up over their farm and left the crops there. Uh, these were the things that those stories laid the foundation for me for this work, this gospel. And I, I was thinking, why is it when, um, why do those stories hold more weight than some of the stories you read in the scriptures long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the premise for our Stories of the Saints uh, segments where we hear the stories of people today and God's working with them. But 
those foundations, uh, they meant a lot, I, I guess, because they were maybe my our, our ancestors or our great-grandparents or people that we know and that, that we're close to have had experiences. And I don't know, they, they it just, I guess it's knowing that God has his eyes on us and is aware of us means a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing you were... Oh, I don't want to use the word special because everyone's special in God's eyes. But the fact that you could see specific things he did in the lives of people that let you know that, yeah, God was real and God was interacting and his purposes and all these larger purposes were true, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, those foundations are, I think they're integral to um, our relationship with the Lord there's it's important though and i've really i've appreciated your study and learning in the book of mormon and what it teaches and i i know sometimes you you bring up these parallelisms or chiasms or different hebrew poetry styles and you point it out and it's almost like you can't get away from it anymore because you're i know that through your study you're seeing more and more and it and it adds to the meaning of the words that has helped my faith because the more I see about that, the more deeply ingrained within me, I think, is my ability to trust the Word of God and to know that the Book of Mormon really went from the hands of Nephi and Jacob and Moroni and Mormon, and they etched the words that God gave them into plates and that those plates came forth and were translated one time by the power of God, you know, through the through the miraculous power of God, and that those words are trustworthy, and they give us what we need to know, and how, as, as the Book of Mormon says, so that we know how to come to Him mm-hmm. by these words, how to come to Him and prepare to meet Him, so important. And that foundation, at times, may butt heads with other foundations that we've laid, um, traditions, testimonies, uh, experiences that people have had. And sometimes these make you go, hmm, is that true or not? And because you've, you've brought forth some of these elements in the Book of Mormon, I have more of a desire and love to rely wholly on those words explaining to me who God is and what he expects from me and how to come to him and to be able to trust that. And so I guess what I'm saying is when there's a crossroads or when things happen, you don't want your foundation to be shaken. Uh, I I was telling you before we started rolling the tape about uh, some friends that I had that were, were lifelong members of the RLDS church that ended up joining the LDS church. And when I asked them, why they said well you know baptism for the dead was a revelation by joseph smith jr and the rlds church just you know took it out of the scriptures and so we wondered why don't we practice that and realize that the lds faith does believe in that and that's the work of that they do in their temples and they baptize people for their dead and it's a matter of salvation to them and so they uh, and so that caused them to change the direction of their faith and their idea of salvation. I'll, 
you and I had been talking last week, and I wanted to talk about some things like that because we don't have to be scared of them. We don't have to try to make them fit in a way that they don't. But the purpose is if if something like that is in the history or if it happened, you have to examine it and say, does it measure up with the gospel we've been given? Mm. And as Paul said early, early on, if I or, or an angel of the Lord comes and preaches a gospel contrary to what you've been given, then let them be cursed. Don't don't pay attention to them. So that, that's like, I don't know how he could have said it any stronger. He said, even if I say something that's contrary to the gospel, don't don't give it any heed. But what, so you and I were talking, um, talk to me about the times and seasons, early church periodicals. A lot of the revelations were printed in there. There was quite a bit of debate and just uh, added information that was going out to the people. And I, we talked this week, did a little search on baptism for the dead. I've always been curious if Joseph wrote that or not, but that revelation came out while he was still alive for several years. Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> um, and I don't know that that's even uh, the the place to start. You know, sometimes it's like we were talking before the tape started rolling. Uh, that like we were talking a little bit about section seventy six, and if you want to understand life after death, the section seventy six may not be the beginning of the story. Uh, it's like in the New Testament when we were talking about Romans and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ. Well, to understand that scripture in the New Testament, a person really has to start with the Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, right? Because that's where the foundation of all that begins. And I think this issue with baptism of the dead is something that to, to actually open that up begins a lot earlier. And, and it starts in uh, the New Testament where there's this conversation that Paul is having with saints at, at Corinth. And if if you want, maybe we could open that up a sure. little bit and and talk about it. So, I was I know we were talking about this, uh, you know, off podcast, but um, for me recently, I was studying on our favorite topic, you know, this life after death and this what the Book of Mormon message is, and I love that image you you brought up just now, Mike, about hey, it went from Nephi's hands, you know, into Joseph's, and one step, it's in our hands. It's like, you know, I just picture standing in this room, and Nephi passes this text, these plates to Joseph, who passes it off to us in perfectly translated English, and now we're talking with Nephi. I mean, in terms of we got got the thought. It's beautiful. And how many times when they're writing throughout their... It, does language come up like this was made known to me yesterday or this was made known to me by an angel of the Lord? Mm-hmm. It's it's not like man's just writing a history, which there's there was other plates for that. These were the more spiritual things, and, and it was like there was no guesswork. It mm-hmm. was the angel told me this. Yeah. yeah. Um, from yeah. the lips of God to, through his messenger to to the plates to us. Yeah, and so one thing that I think for you and I both on my journey— in studying, I found that the Book of Mormon becomes the place I want to start with any doctrinal question, you know. I, I, I want it because it's it's answered there. And one thing is uh, baptism for the dead is never mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Um, it wasn't mentioned even in the early part of the Restoration. It happened in the last days 
in Nauvoo. I say last days, that means before Joseph Smith was martyred. And um, while maybe he did, you know, talk about it and many people were talking about it and it was practiced, um, where I want to go is back into 1 Corinthians 15. So I was studying, I started to say our, our favorite topic about life after death, and I wanted to understand how 1 Corinthians 15 which talks uses the word celestial, terrestrial, telestial in our like King James or inspired version. I wanted to see how that was defined in a Jewish Bible it, because I thought you know it could it could help the understanding to see maybe in in a different language translation you know what these words actually meant. Well, so I picked up this. It's a Jewish New Testament by David Stern. It's been out for you know, a couple decades. And it's really, really good. I, I've learned a lot reading from it already. Um, the inspired version, by the way, doesn't really lend any new information in First Corinthians 15. But First Corinthians 15 is famous for a couple of things. It has this passage that talks about oh, celestial, terrestrial, telestial, but it doesn't use those words in the Jewish version. But the the point, getting back to our conversation, is that's where it also talks about baptism for the dead. And so I opened up this Bible in this this Jewish New Testament, thinking I was going to get more enlightened on, well, what did they have to say about the celestial, terrestrial, and resurrection? And then I thought, you know, this is the same chapter where it talks about baptism for the dead. And, and when I read this, I'm thinking, I'm going into this with this mindset thinking, he's going to have a difference in words or language, which totally negates baptism for the dead, which which I was prepared to, you know, I was kind of looking for the scriptures to say, oh no, baptism for the dead wasn't practiced. This was a misunderstanding, whatever, misunderstanding of the language, for instance. But when I read it in the Hebrew New Testament, I I was surprised that the language read pretty much the way we've read it. And and I want to, I'm going to read it out of the Bible, or the inspired version, and then I want to read it out of this Jewish New Testament both. And then I want to share just a little bit of what I learned about both. So this is this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, and it's, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to get to, I want to bring up the reason why 1 Corinthians 15 exists. Paul was encountering saints in Corinth who, while they had been converted to Christianity, were not clear on the idea that our bodies were going to be resurrected. They they had this understanding that maybe our souls live forever, but they didn't get the resurrection part, like we we're going to have a new body. That's That was what they were missing. And so Paul's whole treatise here is challenging them to see that our bodies were going to be resurrected. And so that's where this conversation starts with how he's he's like, hey, if Jesus died and was resurrected, well, don't you think you will be? And then he talks about how a seed, when it dies, it comes back in a totally different form. You know, a little kernel of corn comes back totally different as a big corn plant, right? And, and he said, and every seed is different. An acorn turns into a huge oak tree. Well, it's interesting because when, when I read this in Corinthians and then this Jewish New Testament, I realized that that's why he was saying, hey, body celestial, terrestrial, telestial, 
he was just saying, all these things are beautiful. He said, the sun is beautiful in its own way. That was the celestial. The moon was beautiful in its own way. The stars are beautiful in their own way. And he's saying, when our bodies are resurrected, they're going to be beautiful in their own way, and they're not all going to be necess- the same. And Because and, this was the question of the people back then. He, he was first trying to convince them, your bodies are going to be resurrected. Then, then the question is, well, what are our bodies going to be like? And he said, they're going to be different. They're going to be beautiful. He said, beautiful, just like the heavens are beautiful, the sun, the moon. That's what he was saying. So then what happens, and I, I know I'm, I'm going to get to the text here in a second, but there's this mentioning of baptism for the dead. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to start uh, and hop around a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15. So at verse... Uh, 12, again, he's talking to people who aren't getting the fact that they are going to be resurrected. And he says, now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the people were saying, you know, they, again, they were confused about the resurrection. And, and he's trying to teach them the truth about resurrection. And then he says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. So he first establishes we are going to be resurrected just like Jesus. And, and he's speaking, it sounds like, to believers because he says oh, your faith is in vain. Correct. People that believe in Christ. Correct, correct. And so then he says, um, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, yet ye are in your sins. So he's saying, you're, if, you know, all this stuff is connected, the salvation of Christ, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the dead. He said, if we aren't resurrected from the dead, dead then your sins aren't forgiven and none of this stuff holds. But then he states, but now, and this is verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? And then he makes these beautiful parallels. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And another parallel is, if, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So as humans died because of sin, because of Christ will be made alive again. So then he says, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, he was the first one after those that are Christ's at his coming. And then... And he says, and after that, the end comes when he'll deliver the kingdom of God to the Father. He'll have put down all rule and authority and power. That means a man. And he'll reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy, death, shall be destroyed. So so he's starting all this out to say that resurrection is part of the gospel, just like salvation and removal of sin, right? So then where he goes with this, though, is he's trying to show these people what's happening around them, even by other people in their own culture. And this is verse 27, 28, 29. For he saith, when is it manifest that he hath put all things under his feet, that all things are put under, he is accepted of the Father who did put all things under him. I'm going to read that out of the Jewish Bible, and it's going to make a little more sense. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So basically what this is saying is that death is going to be destroyed, but as the Son was submissive to the Father, he said all this is coming back to return glory to the Father. Everything will be subject to him. And and then he makes this statement without explaining it. But if you understand the culture of the day, it makes perfect sense. Remember, the context is you guys need to understand people 
are going to be resurrected. And then he makes this statement in verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So this is the thing that's caused people to say, oh, well, were they, was Paul teaching that the dead were supposed to be baptized? You know, when John's lining up at the river and baptizing Jesus, were there other people lining up doing these proxy baptisms like, you know, Mormons practice still today and was apparently going on in Nauvoo? Well, the Nauvoo period was kind of a, uh, comes with an asterisk by it in church history because there were a lot of different ideas that came in at that time period. Um, which some of them we'll have to kind of get to. I don't want to jump too far ahead because I don't want to. I don't want to leave this point here in in First Corinthians twenty nine. The the culture of the day is extremely important. What I learned from this, and then I went and read it in the Hebrew Bible, and it read almost the same way. And I'll, I'll turn to the Hebrew Bible here in a second. But it caused me to question: Well, were they really baptizing people for the dead? The answer is no. They they weren't at all. At least Paul wasn't. What was happening in the day, and, and you can find this online, is that uh, I, I read a commentary by a named, man named Ellicott who's really, really gifted, I think, in his understanding of Scripture, and he lived 100 or so years ago. But he explains what was happening culturally. There were a couple groups of people who were converted Jews who were also Christian Remember, they've had 1,500 years of Mosaic law ingrained in them. What was happening, one group was called the Serenths, the, like It's almost like Corinthians, but they were the Serenths. And, and another group had the name, begins with an M. I'll, I'll find it here and read it. But the point was this. These people were Jews who remember part of the Jewish law that you could be clean or unclean. Now, you could be ceremonially unclean. Unclean wasn't the same as being sinful and cast out. You could, you know, a, a woman, when she was having her menstrual cycle, was unclean. That wasn't like a sinful thing. Or if people had had, you know, sexual interaction, they would be unclean until the evening. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't like they were sinful. It just meant you couldn't go to the temple during that period. And that was just part of the law. There were, there were reasons for it. But What's interesting is that these people who had been Jews, who had been brought up, told you can be clean or unclean, also had now taken on Jesus. But I don't think they had differentiated their old traditions completely. <clears throat> because what was happening among these two groups of people, these Serenths and, and these, these other groups, this other group, is they were Jews whose people had died during the time when they were ceremonially unclean. Um, Jesus was likely unclean because if you went into the room of a dead person, for instance, just a funeral, everyone in that room was ceremonially unclean for a time period. So, you know, Jesus would have had times even in that because he went and healed dead people, but he was in the room, right, when they were were dead. So the, the point wasn't that you were cast out of heaven, but Jesus comes along and the Book of Mormon teaches this, it's interesting that these book, the words come from the Book of Mormon because I can't find them in the New Testament exactly like this. The Book of Mormon says, no unclean thing shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if I'm a Jew and I've been living with clean and unclean forever and I haven't really completely separated salvation through Christ versus salvation through the law of Moses, I hear that, oh, I'm unclean and if I'm unclean, I can't go to heaven. Well, people were <clears throat> in their day say you had just gone to the funeral and then you died the next day and you hadn't passed the time period when you were now, quote, clean in the Mosaic law, 
they were concerned for these people who were dying, who were, quote, still unclean according to the Mosaic law. And they were literally doing this. The dead person was on their bed, and they would ask this person, do you want to be baptized? Because they thought they had to be baptized to be clean now. And they were ceremonially unclean from the Mosaic law, which was, which was done or about to be done. And they would have someone lie under the bed, literally, and they would ask the dead person, do you want to be baptized and you know follow Christ? And they would have a living person who was like acting like they were the voice of the dead person speak up and say, yes, I want to be baptized. And so someone else would go be baptized for them. This in their mind, they thought, rectified everything. They were trying to reconcile Mosaic law uncleanness with coming to Christ. Hmm. It's weird, isn't it? But uh, this happened in history. So coming back to, to Paul, Paul isn't trying to explain it here because the people in the culture are very aware of what's going on. His point is simply this, the, the way I read this. He's saying, hey, then if there's no resurrection for the dead, even these people over here who are like not even getting the whole point of this realize there's a resurrection for the dead. That's why they're doing this proxy baptism for the dead. But it was this just little tiny group, this, you know, these... Um, Gnostics, I think that was the term they used. People who didn't quite get the idea of God yet. They had this idea that there was like a, a vengeful God of the Old Testament and a separate God of the New Testament. And it's like they were confused about a lot of things. But the only reason Paul is bringing this up is to just show the extreme example saying, even these people over here who don't get it, they do get the fact that there's a there's a resurrection, right? So, or else, yeah, why would they be worried about baptizing? Yeah, 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 and and that is the context of it. <laughs> that that is the context of why it's mentioned historically. And so, um, what's interesting is that this idea pops its head up um, again. It's not. Um, it wasn't just something that came forth in the 1800s, and it wasn't just something that was referenced a long time ago. But it it was a it was a theme that appears again, and I always just think of Satan just sowing in little seeds, and he kind of works the same way through the ages with men and and anything to take your eyes off of uh, truth. Right, right, exactly. And and this was this was happening then. In fact. Um, let me re- read this out of this Jewish New Testament because I, I think this clear. It's more clear here, and then uh, I want to read something from the book of uh, First Gospel of John. So this is from Stern's uh, David Stern's Jewish New Testament, and and he states this is verse twenty eight and twenty nine in First Corinthians fifteen. Now, when everything has been subjected to the Son, then He will subject Himself to God, who subjected everything to Him, so that God may be everything. In every one. So it all comes back to God. And then he's, again, verse 29, were it otherwise, what would the people accomplish who are, who are immersed on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not actually raised, why are people immersed for them? That's a, it's, a, it's a clearer way of saying it, but he's saying, hey, if, if all this doesn't lead to resurrection, why are they doing that, right? And, and so, he wasn't taking time to explain it or to dismiss it as an incorrect tradition. He was just saying, again, the extreme of it is that these people were, were not correct, but yet they understood resurrection. 
But so in this same commentary, what I found was interesting is he said, uh, the, the author says, he said, people were in many places trying to correct not this error, but several errors in the, in the land of the day. Because as you said, hey, Satan's always planting these little seeds, trying to get people off course. And in this first gospel of John, uh, John's stating several times, uh, he's, he's trying to clear things up. And if, for instance, uh, well, the same commentary says, the first gospel of John was likely written because of these things going on. It was literally written to these people or uh, warning the people who were on track of the deception that was around them. So first gospel of John chapter two, in, at verse 21, John writes, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So first thing he's trying to do is establish, you know, the, the truth from the lies. And then in first John chapter four, verse one, he states, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then he tells how to, to know the right one from the wrong one. And this is, again, kind of where we come to in, in our day in, uh, in Nauvoo is that, you know, there were some false ideas that came forth. And part of the reason is because of some corruption that was going on in the minds of, of men. Now, uh, there's probably still more we could say about baptism for the dead. But the first thing is just that what was used as a justification for it by anyone from the New Testament was incorrect because Paul was not justifying it either. He was drawing a line in the sand and simply using it for an extreme example to point to the fact of resurrection. Yeah, another uh, great example of knowing the audience, knowing the culture at the time, and understanding the arguments being made and why, why they are being made because the why gets us to the importance of uh, the truth, which is you know, Jesus was resurrected, and uh, we we see the same thing uh, over and over in the, in the New Testament. And again, when when we ask the question, "What does the Book of Mormon teach about baptism for the dead?" Nothing. And we we spoke this week. All of the things about Christ and this great plan of salvation and. Um, how to come to to God through Jesus Christ and the atonement in the Book of Mormon. That's all, so much of that is all Old Testament. Talk about people looking at the Bible and saying, oh, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That's not true in the Book of Mormon. It's not true in the Bible, but it's definitely very easily seen that it's the same God in the Book of Mormon Old Testament before Christ comes. They... And that's why you don't have to go through these exercises of trying to understand the Book of Mormon because it's written to to the more righteous people who understand Jesus Christ even before he came and the plan of salvation. So there's not the roadblock, and we've mentioned that many times. But in the Bible, you have to be careful to not pick stuff out and plop it down into our modern way of thinking. Exactly, exactly. Well, in about, I just wanted to say these these commentaries and things. I, I I think you told me to read one of them, but they're like on a main. What is it? The Bible Hub or the yeah, Bible Gateway? Yeah, you can go to Bible Hub. I, these read. are things that tools that Christians use all over the world, and they're they're commentaries by people that um, are are 
vetted or respected. It's not like some fringe thing that, well, where's, where are you guys pulling this out of? I, it's, it's out there easily to be, not easily, but to be found if you search for uh, any commentary on those yeah. type of websites. And, and, you know, not all commentaries, like, right. you know, not all sermons are, are always, you know, uh, maybe totally on track, but this, the thing that I think sets some commentaries apart is like Ellicott, who seemed to have a really good understanding of the culture mm-hmm. of the day. And he can he takes the words, the meanings. Um, he's the same one who a couple podcasts ago, I think we talked about in Acts, where it talks about uh, Jesus saved us from the pains of death. And he said, pains isn't the right word. They mistranslated the Greek. You know, he understood the nuance of the language to the point where he said it should be bands of death. And then, so bands of death doesn't occur in the New Testament. I don't think it occurs in the Old Testament either, but it's all through the Book of Mormon, right? As as the right language. So same guy, you know, understands his culture and the nuance of the language. And it would be like today if you were talking to a Hindu or a Buddhist about uh, eternal life and you said something to them like, like even the Muslims believe there's only one God. Uh, you're making a point, but that doesn't mean that you believe in the Muslim faith or whatever. But if you're reading that in a culture at a different time period, or then that may not make any sense to you whatsoever because you don't understand what, the point you're trying to make. Yeah, The it- point is there's one path. That's the truth you're trying to explain, and, and you bring in what's going on in the day. So we we have to be careful. Uh, but so no, that's a, that's an excellent point. I, I like that. You know, I'm, go ahead. Well, I was going to say. So then, take this. You, you've established that uh, <laughs> Paul's not not giving this practice any credence, but he was making a point. Now you go up into the 1800s, and all of a sudden. This is an ordinance and something that um, was supposed to be a mystery revealed. And that's where I was reading uh, in the church periodical uh, and just some of the stuff surrounding this. When there's when there's words that come out like, I want to reveal to you these hidden mysteries that I've kept for truth to come forth in these last times, that's my uh, warning sign. My little antennas start to go up, especially when... God has already said in the revelation that uh, I want you to preach my gospel contained in the Bible and the fullness of the gospel in the Book of Mormon. Why would there still be hidden mysteries then? Well, that's the question, you know, I saving I, mysteries. Like we're talking about salvation, not just you can do this if you want. It's a good thing. I and mean, this is like necessary for people you love to be able to be in heaven. You know, it's volume six, chapter 12, page 955 of the Times and Seasons, which was the church's publication in the days of uh, Nauvoo. Uh, it continued on after Joseph. Well, after Joseph's martyrdom, uh, here's a quote from Sidney, or not from Sidney, from uh, Brigham Young, where he's preaching to the people and he's introducing. He's, he's making public this concept of spiritual wifeism, which was a euphemism for polygamy. But uh, he states this, I quote, Joseph in his lifetime did not receive everything connected with the doctrine of redemption, but he has left the key with those who understand how to obtain and teach this great people all that is necessary for their salvation and exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God. In other words, you know, this is coming back to uh, this other topic that, where we get 
the conversation of celestial, terrestrial, telestial was mainly born out of people of this day who were blending in ideas of man saying, well, if you want to be in the celestial glory, you know, polygamy is a part of this. That's literally what, what they introduced. And so further on in this letter, uh, he starts saying this uh, spiritual wifeism. That's this quote he says. Uh, he's, he's trying to put it off on Joseph, but then he's saying no one can be perfect without the woman. This is the spiritual wifeism. This is the doctrine of spiritual wives. You know, he's, he's introducing this idea. Well, I bring this up because at the same time, the baptism for the dead was brought up. Now, whether or not Joseph Smith originated that, whether or not that everything is that's ascribed to Joseph was something he he actually said or not, I don't know. I can't say. But whether or not he had an idea that was incorrect based on a misunderstanding of the New Testament, um, I I could buy that because I found a couple other things that have been said by people in the day that again, if when you go back to the Hebrew and the understanding, you find that maybe their learning, their training wasn't quite right here, but. I don't want to get off topic. Here's here's what happened in this time period of this spiritual wifeism. Uh, there were <laughs> there were a lot of people who were looking for a loophole, and they used they tried to use the Book of Mormon to justify polygamy because of this. The, the Book of Mormon's language is the strongest against having more than one wife and it's called an abomination. It's called a whoredom by Jacob, but there's this commandment that says, Hey, if you know, God's saying, but if I will raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Well, what's interesting is that, uh, I was sitting on an airplane 20 some years ago next to a woman who was reading the book of Mormon. I said, Oh, you're a book of Mormon believer. And, and she and her husband were LDS. We had a wonderful conversation, but it came up in the conversation that they were both born out of polygamy. Their great grandparents had, had been polygamous. You can't choose your parents, right? You can't choose your grandparents. You are who you are. And, and it doesn't make someone illegitimate. You know, they're the only illegitimate, there's, there's no illegitimate children. There's only illegitimate parents, but you know, that's the only, that's the issue. So, I, I asked them, we had a really polite, pleasant conversation, but I said, I, I've always wondered how is it that that polygamy was justified? And they and this lady, you know, points out, and Jacob says, well, it says if God will raise up seed on me. Well, what, what the interesting thing about this is, when it was written in the Book of Mormon, again, culture and context makes a difference here too. That was written by Jacob, Nephi's brother, at 500-something B.C. The Old Testament was still in effect. The Old Testament had laws like this. This term, raise up seed unto me, is it's, it's used in the Book of Mormon, but it's specifically used in the situation where if a brother, if, if there were two men and they were brothers, and the one man marries and dies before he has children, by the law of Moses, the second brother was obligated to take the first wife in it, doesn't say unless he's not married, even if he is married, he's supposed to have children with her so that there can be a legacy, a memorial to the brother who died. That was part of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law commanded that basically in this situation, we would call it polygamy, but the, the fact was there was a, you know, extramarital relationship introduced by the Mosaic law if the man died without children. And it was called so that I, he can raise up seed unto him. Well, in the day Jacob speaks this, that was the law. And so I would imagine that even in uh, the Americas, if they were keeping the Mosaic law, that may have been what they were doing as well because it was part of everything else, just like killing a lamb on Passover. 
Well, the only reason I bring that up, though, is they bring it up in the context that this culture of the Nephites had started becoming uh, apparently polygamous, at least in their thoughts, and they were they were doing this for adulterous reasons. They were probably trying to use the Old Testament provision that made up for if a man dies without inherit seed children. But they were starting to just get lustful and want want women, right? You know and that makes sense because if it, they, he says even the Lamanites who are wicked, so probably <clears throat> weren't even keeping the Mosaic law. But even the Lamanites, maybe that's why they only had one wife because they weren't twisting that into. <laughs> that's an excellent, yeah, excellent, excellent thought, and and that's right. And because Jacob says, and because they have, they remember and keep this. God's going to remember them and bless them, you know. So that's all out of Jacob, and that's a great point because they didn't maybe practice the Mosaic law they they weren't subject to this thinking well that was only for the mosaic times and when jesus died that law was fulfilled never do you get a commandment to have polygamy you know or anything like of this such you know in jesus after jesus resurrection and for this reason the whole type and shadow of starts with adam and eve is one man one wife because it's a type for god and the church one god with one church those who come mm-hmm. to him, are baptized in the spirit. The reason why polygamy is wrong is because it doesn't follow the spiritual type, the pattern that God doesn't have multiple churches. He has those who die to themselves and come to him with broken hearts and kind of spirits and are born again through the spirit. That is his church. And so to teach that, that's why in our marriages, it's one man and one woman, unless the, the one companion dies, but it's only one. So there was never a, a provision for polygamy in the New Testament. And and here, the, Brigham and these people all of a sudden decided they were going to find a loophole, and it was just adulterous hearts of men promoting this idea. And I, I, I don't need to apologize. I will, because I know we have LDS listeners. It's not you and it's not your fault. It's not just, you know, the heritage maybe you grew up in, but polygamy is wrong. It has been wrong. It was never commanded by Jesus. The people who did this in Joseph Smith's day were wrong. Well, how does this tie in with baptism for the dead? The conversation of baptism for the dead was going on for about the last two years of Joseph's life. There were writings about it. Different people were preaching about it, speaking about it. But what's interesting is in, this is in church history, uh, volume two, chapter 24, page 559. The time period is 1842. There's a letter that goes out to the people and it's signed by Brigham Young, Heber Kimball, Orson Pratt, William Smith, Lyman Wright, uh, Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, George Smith, Willard Richards, all those people became noted polygamists, but they were all also part of the Council of Twelve at the time. They send this letter out that says, the building of the temple of the Lord in the city of Nauvoo is occupying the first place in the exertions and prayers of many of the saints at this time, knowing as they do that if this building is not completed speedily, we shall, it's quote, we shall be rejected as a church with our dead. And so what's interesting is that what they they ask for they put this they put this mindset in the people that hey if we don't get this done God's given us a time frame he's going to reject us all well where is that written in the book of mormon well the gentiles are going to be rejected because they didn't get a, a temple built on God's timeline by his deadline you know where does nephi say god was going to reject the whole family of lehi if i didn't get this boat built by you know october 1st or something it's like you don't you don't ever hear this kind of language it's like 
It just, it just doesn't sound right. But what's more is that, okay, they got the temple built eventually. And then how many temples do you know that have been taken out by fire and a tornado both? Well, that's what happened to the Nauvoo temple. So God wanted them to get it done quickly so he could wipe it out, you know, within a couple of years. It, it sounds fishy to me. And so all these people signed it, but, but the whole thing is what's interesting. And, and this might just be me reading a little too much into this. You know, this is a this letter is a plea for people to send money, tithings, everything they can, so they can get the temple done. And um, and if we don't act on this principle, you know, everything's going to cease. This generation will remain without a house, and the church rejected. I'm, I'm reading from this, uh, and then so we can't let this happen. So they're they're telling everyone to send what they can, um, and and the elders will instruct people to do what they can, and it's all signed off by these people. Uh, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can you can find it on the on Restored Gospel. But here's the here's the point of this. I've thought about this recently. I thought, you know, if I'm practicing polygamy, how, you know, it's what it's like when you when you take your family out to dinner, and you know, you're thinking, ah, I got to use a debit card or credit card. It's always more expensive than eating at home. But what if you take out your family and another family? It's like, well, you can't do that every night of the week. Well, what happens if you've got 18 wives or 20 wives or Brigham <laughs> ends up with over 50 wives? How do you feed those people every day? I'm convinced, I'm convinced that when these tithings and consecrations were coming in, I don't trust the hearts of some of these people. How, you know, who was keeping the books? Who was managing the books? Because this temple obviously was not something God even intended for it to remain on earth because it didn't. It was wiped out, right? And, and, but I look at the people who signed all this, and within, a, within not very long, they're all gone to Utah. And Utah, historically, wasn't part of the United States then. It was actually still Mexico territory. Their whole thing was they were practicing polygamy. They needed money. It wasn't so much the temple, but they got out of Dodge pretty soon. But they also used the baptism for the dead as the justification for it. And that's what happened is that, no, God said we're going to be uh, rejected by him if we don't practice baptism for the dead. Send us all the money you can. And they did. And then these guys were gone. And just a little history, that this... Uh, there was a revelation, I believe, in 1841, so three years before Joseph uh, was killed, that went out in the church periodical, and it was section 107 in the Doctrine and Covenants that was printed in 1844. This was uh, in the book and then subsequently was removed later on by one of the conferences in the RLDS church as not being part of the Doctrine and Covenants any longer. It was moved to the appendix, and then you're lucky if I don't even think you can find it now, but it is on RestoreGospel.com. You can read Section 107 in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, Scripture search. But listen, this is the language that it starts with. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, I am well pleased with your offering. And so you see that it's that's the language that God is speaking to Joseph, and he's writing this down. Uh, and it goes on to talk about that the baptisms for the dead only happen, can only take, are only going to be able to take place in the temple. And, and if it's not built, uh, in time that it won't that it won't be able to be uh, done that among other things in here and and so why why is this important to us today and 
I, I, I'm not, I don't want to destroy anybody's faith at all, but rather strengthen our faith that we can rely on the Book of Mormon and not on men. And all men are fallible and fall and fail. We we forget. Poor Joseph is like just drugged through the mud all the time, and I think has expectations that no man could live up to. If we were alive during Moses' time and or Noah's time, you know, gets off the ark and gets drunk, or David who who is up on the housetop watching this lady bathe naked and kills her husband so he can take her as his wife. I mean, how how terrible is that? I mean, what a sin. And yet we're all we're all sinners, right? Yeah. And so we can't hold when we know him when we're too close to him, we know too many details. Right. right. I think it goes back to what we started with, like the testimonies in the church, we want they have so much because they're closer in time and because they're our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors that we ex- when we see God working with them, I think it has it has a great er- impact on us because it's people we know in our culture and our mm-hmm. time and it's like he still knows us and we hold we hold these things up. We don't want Joseph Smith to ever do anything wrong. We we want it, you know, we're looking for that hero and for that but but he's not our savior Jesus is and right and I'm not judging him at all or or this revelation if I, I my point is this it it was published and he was alive for 3 years at least after it was published and so if it was something that wasn't from him um I don't know of any writings where he where he contradicted it or said hey that wasn't from me mm-hmm. and Certainly, if someone published it while he was alive in his name, they would know that there would have been a, a backlash, at least from him. And so that doesn't make sense either. So I have to imagine that this was legitimately from Joseph Smith, who mm-hmm. said it was from God. I mean, that's the wording at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Thus, thus saith God to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting, I suppose, to read if Joseph Smith the Third, you know, who was his son, but didn't take the position of the leader of the church for many years after his father's death. If he ever had anything to say regarding recollections or people in the Smith family, you know, because there were probably contentions. And as they say, history is a fable made up by the winners. And, and so I don't know, you know, who said what or who thought what, but nevertheless, you're right. It's like, if you looked at King David's life at the time where, you know, he uh, has Bathsheba, uh, you know, and, and has done, terrible things to to have her, you would just say, this is a wicked, corrupt man. But yet, David's the one who killed Goliath. David's the one who was appointed from all, he was the youngest of the 12 brothers, and God says, no, my hand is on him. And and he becomes king of Israel, and he, he leads valiantly. You know, he takes over from Saul, and all this was God's doing, and yet you see a man who obviously did things of his own heart. Um, has there been opportunity for that in times past? Well, apparently, yeah, the scriptures talk, you know, about just again back in First John, judge not every spirit, you know, or, or trust not every spirit, you know, judge righteously. And so this is where I come back to the Book of Mormon and say, you know, this could have been the doings of men. Um, obviously, there were things that happened. Uh, Parley Pratt is a name we've all heard in scripture, and I'm not in scripture in church history, but it's interesting that he became the editor of the Times and Seasons later, and then he names these same men and a couple others saying, oh, these are the ones uh, who are Jacob, the parable of the olive tree mentions these workers who are named by the, or called by the 
master of the vineyard to do the final work in the end. And, and he literally says, these are these men. And he names them all off saying, this is fulfilling the scripture. Well, he was wrong. He, that wasn't true. I mean, uh, there was a lot of things said by people and done. And I'm like, did they just get all kind of full of themselves in, in a way where they were prospering and just had forgotten their God? It's like, I, th- I look back at this now and realize they made a mistake early on that we can't afford to make where they they fell away from the doctrine that God restored to them, which was the Book of Mormon. You know, this is the thing we're supposed to come back to. There was some more. Uh, listen, listen to the language um, that is written here. This is in 10 d It says, There is not a place found on earth that he may come and restore again that which was lost unto you or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. For a baptismal font there is not upon the earth that they, my saints, may be baptized for those who are dead. For this ordinance belongeth to my house and cannot be acceptable to me only in the days of your poverty, wherein you are not able to build a house unto me. But I command you, all my saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me, and during this time your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. But at the end of your appointment, your baptisms for your dead will not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. So, there's uh, that's the basis for that letter that was signed by all of the Council of Twelve. That's also interesting that it says this is part of the fullness of the priesthood, perhaps doing this ordinance, that there's something, some other mystery there that we're not functioning. And I don't remember where I read it. I was one of the, I just did a search on this on, on church history, but at one point they call themselves, God says that, that the priesthood, you will be the saviors in Mount Zion. Mm -hmm. And I just, I see the, um, the purpose of the priesthood. It was, it was pretty a powerful thing there. And I, I think men were more interested from what I'm reading in a lot in their own authority and their selves and not the humble servants to point people to Christ. Amen. And when that happens, you open yourself up to all kinds of prideful notions and fall. And, and we're no different today. We're no, I mean, that's what happens when you lose your place and elevate yourself above your Lord and your Savior. Yeah. And and anything you, can happen. Do you think that may have been just the, the root of why all this transpired was just that? It's Power. Yeah. I, I absolutely mm-hmm. believe so. And, and men, well— by the language of this revelation, they were practicing baptisms for the dead. That I, I have no idea how that started or when it started. You know, kind of like the polygamy obviously was happening. Like this all just didn't happen the day after Joseph Smith died. This this was going on right now because that's what it says that you're. It's okay to do them now, but once the temple's built, that's going to be the only place you do them. Yeah, and. You know, who who knows? The same section 107, then later in verse 18, talks about a boarding house, which was supposed to be this Nauvoo house. And it was talking about, 
let it be built in my name. My name will be on it from generation to generation. Uh, and it, it talks about, you know, Abraham and kindreds and all these things. Therefore, let them have this place in this house from generation to generation forever after. You know, it's talking about this will be Joseph Smith's house. It'll be called the Nauvoo house. Uh, let it be a delightful habitation for man, a resting place for the weary traveler. Contemplate the glory of Zion. Well, all of that sounds wonderful, but the whole thing is it was never built, at least not then. Um, and Joseph Smith's family didn't live there. And, and you know, it's like this didn't come to pass. And so it's like, was this just a letter? Was Were these just kind thoughts? Because it seems we were overzealous, we as the church, to maybe take anything that came from Joseph Smith's mouth or any apostle and always assume it was Scripture. Yeah, well, this one, this is obviously Scripture that's written in first part that God is saying. Yeah. Uh, he says, I say unto you, let this house be built unto my name that I may reveal mine ordinances therein unto my people. For I deign to reveal unto my church things which have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. That, uh, so when It's one thing to, to receive revelation and ongoing enlightenment in the words of God, but when you're talking about ordinances and the way we understand ordinances, that they're for the salvation of the souls of men to manifest God, when he says that he's going to reveal hidden ordinances, things that he's kept hid, then that sounds to me like there's more to the gospel if that's because those are those are relating to salvation. They're for the salvation of the souls of man. They're not just, uh, I'm going to prophesy on how things are going to transpire and yeah. dates and times. There's You're talking about doing things that the priest did do that have a spiritual effect on people. Right. To, ordinances. How that, to come to God. So if there's more ordinances that have been hidden, that we have to have a temple to be revealed, you can see where we know these things happen later after the church was split up, all kinds of things. You just, you wonder, I I don't think that, well, I, I don't believe this is the word of God. And the church later on rejected this revelation. Yeah, yeah. But the point is this. This is not to ruin our foundation, but to strengthen our foundation in, as God says, the fullness of the gospel contained in the Book of Mormon, and not to run when these, because people leave the church over these kind of things and have, and, and as I pointed out, you know, I know people that have joined other faiths because of these type of things they can't reconcile, and to me it's very clearly stated, if any other gospel is preached, reject it, because I've given you my gospel. I agree. I, I think this idea that, um, you know, obviously there's mysteries that we don't know how God formed the heavens and the earth, and we don't know things like that. Obviously, he could reveal that, and that would all be brand new information, even to any cosmologist or physicist of our day. You know, they would learn things that no mind has even contemplated. But to know how to come to Christ, is it's been revealed, and this idea is... It's implicit in baptism for the dead that somehow God is bound and these people are stranded in spiritual limbo unless we do something on earth for them. And to me, that's contrary to scripture that we do have already that, again, this gets back to this beautiful message from Abinadi in Mosiah chapter 8 that, hey, God saves those who've come to him, who followed the commandments. God saves those who knew no law. God saves little children. And they become resurrected. And people in the prison house also 
um, will become resurrected if their hearts turn. This is already scripture that we've we've been given that when God comes again, he says, I make all things new. It's just like in the Book of Mormon where Jesus comes and the people who are alive at his coming at in the Nephite civilization, he says he doesn't say you were the ones who are only the ones who are baptized. He just says you were the more righteous who didn't stone the prophets. You know, he he brings all these people forth and they're all baptized. And it's like, yeah, there were people who were already alive on the earth. But I guess I, I reject the idea that somehow spirits in wherever they're at right now are stuck unless someone does something physically for them on earth. Because God's got more power than that. Mm. He, he's, he's already brought them to paradise because he knows their hearts. And if they're resurrected, it seems like, well, then they can, they'll be baptized then. But the whole thing is this idea that somehow they just had to be baptized for the dead all came from some notion that was practiced by people who didn't fully understand God. And and we just transferred it into our day and put more glory in a big temple around it. And and now while I will say this, I do appreciate everything the LDS church has done with ancestry.com. The one reason why we have so much information on ancestors is because of their pursuit of ancestry right. for this reason, baptism for the dead, likely maybe it could have happened for other reasons, but nevertheless, it's, it does not appear in any other part of Scripture to be a requirement so that dead and alive and all these people are somehow accepted in Christ. It comes back to where our heart is, and, and that's the bottom line. And I give him more power and credit. Obviously, I don't give him anything he has at all, but in, in, in my mind, I just have to believe that he's got a solution to this that we have— seen with limited eyes and, and limited hearts and a limited viewpoint if we feel like somehow it's up to us to solve this problem about people who died who heart, whose hearts were good and right. weren't baptized. And I don't think anybody, uh, well, like I said, when you hear these arguments against the church or the gospel, and there's plenty of books out there about it, and and <laughs> I remember Santa Caligon, the debates between uh, people that hated the Book of Mormon and Christians that thought they were doing the righteous thing by attacking that. And and it comes down to this. When, when people start pointing out things like this and, and say, you know, that can't be right and Joseph is wrong, then the, I say, yes, you're absolutely right. Any gospel other than what's contained in the Book of Mormon and the and the scriptures we've been given, the Bible is is wrong. And if that's the case, then then men are wrong. And and so I have to go with the Book of Mormon. To me, it just makes it more valid that that's the foundation, and mm-hmm. and not again. It's we did an episode on what does the Book of Mormon not teach, and that was one mm-hmm. of them. We've just kind of dived in today, but but we have no reason to lose our foundation when things like this in our history make us go hmm, because men are fallible. But the Book of Mormon clearly states that. Uh, they, those plates were for a purpose to contain the spiritual things, and 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 he says, write these things in here, and they were guided very, very intimately by the Holy Spirit and by angels and by God, and it's a different, and it doesn't disagree with anything given previously, and as you've pointed out, it clarifies the Bible in in so many ways and and makes it all gel together in such a wonderful way. Yeah, it really, really does. I, I like what you said too that you know we, we've got to separate what is the doctrine and the truth from 
men who can be fallible. And that's always kind of the argument against the Book of Mormon. It usually never comes back to the Book of Mormon and doctrine. It's associated, you know, people's arguments are about the actions of men associated with the Book of Mormon, you know. Right. And that's the difference. Well, that's my belief system and, and our belief system as a people, we have to base it on on the word that's been given and and any anything else that comes after that um, can't be some hidden mystery relating to our salvation that hasn't been given before because we've been told this is how you come to God and this yeah. is the fullness of the gospel and this is so you don't stumble and, yeah. and know me as I am. So interesting stuff, brother. Uh, again, not, not, not here to jolt anybody's faith, but more solidify it, solidify their faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we got to be able to trust something in this world and the word of God and the Holy spirit given as our guide. And, and there is a rod of iron along a straight and narrow road that we are all just walking each other home along. So just grab hold of that rod as we continue our journey home. <laughs>